You're listening to Stories from the Front. Everyone here has got a story to tell. I am an American soldier, baptized in fire and blood. I give my heart and soul, trying to do good. Alright, what's up everyone? This is Oliver here, uh, back again, Stories from the Front, official, uh, getting ready to podcast episode 2, uh, My Anaconda Don't Want None, it's the name of our episode this week. Um, thank you guys, first of all, for coming and listening to the show and checking us out on social media, and we're very excited. I have great guest here today, good friend, um, been trying to get him on for a couple weeks now, finally got him on the show, so I'm very excited to have him here. Um, just a few things before we get started, before we get into it. Um, make sure you're like checking us out on social media and everything. Uh, if you want to get on the podcast, I would love to have you. Of course, I need you to email me or message me, and we'll definitely work you in. So, uh, without further ado, I want to introduce my my guest today, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> it's good to have you here, man. It's good to be here. I'm glad you accepted the invite and got on the show today. Oh, it was. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, <laughs> so, the, so the second episode and the the first guest is you are you are the first official guest on the podcast. That's like going to go down in history. That's like, right. Jeff, Jeff was here. <laughs> Jeff did his thing. So Jeff, of course, is a veteran. Um, so Jeff, tell us a little bit about the guys out there listening. What did you do? What did you come in as, and why you joined? Just things of that nature. Uh, I was in the Air Force, active duty for nine years, eight and a half years. Uh, I was an aircraft armament systems technician. Mm. Armament systems. So, what did you do? It's like, so what does that involve? Is exactly is armament systems. Armament systems are what deliver the payload to the enemy. Oh, so you got to deal with bombs the entire time. Yeah. See, that's the cool shit. No. So, like. So the bombs that you got, so you got like Hellfires or you know J Dams or stuff like that, or uh, I did I did get the opportunity to load some of the uh, some of the the GBUs, the J Dams. Uh, uh, a lot of what I loaded in my time were just dumb bombs, just fire and forget. They fall where they will. Okay, uh, so they're not like laser guided or GPS guided missiles. They're just dropping wherever they land. They land. Kind well, of thing. I I I loaded. Uh, GPS guided cruise missiles. I worked. I worked seven and a half years on a B fifty two. Oh, nice! And uh, the B fifty two, when I was there, had the capability to carry uh, guided guided weapons in the bomb bay and dumb bombs on the wings. So the B fifty two was the Flying Fortress. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know, can you kind of explain what that means to have, like, how big and massive this fucking aircraft is? If I'm correct, uh, the wingspan on this aircraft is 60 foot long. Uh, so it's one of the larger planes in the aircraft's arsenal that yes. carries a lot of armament, yes. bombs, and all that nature, yes. right? Uh, it, uh, during the Vietnam War, it was capable of carrying 81 
bombs, 81 750 pound bombs in the bomb bay itself. Outstanding. Well, all whenever so whenever it was doing missions in Vietnam, where they like traveling with a full payload of bombs of that nature. Oh yeah, Absolutely. and it was it was uh, just open up bomb bay doors and hit the eject button. Go right. 81 bombs on target. That's amazing. So, so you got in before 9-11 and all that shit kicked off. Mm-hmm. So I joined in, I joined December 27th of 95. 95. Dude, I'm like trying to think. I was 10 years old. <laughs> like, I wasn't even thinking about the military then. That's crazy. Like, I, uh, my dad is a retired E-9 from the Air Force. Wow. Uh, both of my grandfathers served in World War II in the Army. That's amazing, man. Uh, military lineage in my family, it, it goes Runs way deep. back. Yeah. Uh, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to serve my country. Did you know that you wanted to go into the Air Force? Or like, did you have an idea of where you wanted to go? I wanted to be a fighter pilot. See? Me too! I grew up. How crazy is Because that? of the fact that my dad was Air Force, I grew up right, around right, planes. Right, right, I, I just, I wanted to be around planes. See, and I, that's the same thing growing up. And when I told him my first episode, it was like, you know, growing up, my grandmother, I always told her, like, I want to be a fighter pilot. That's what I want to do. I want to join the Air Force, be a fighter pilot. Then would <laughs> come down the road when it came down to it. Here I am. I'm not even doing any of that shit. I'm, I joined as a combat engineer. I'm like uh, completely different path, you know. Oh yeah. So, so you said you had some pretty deep lineage. So it, you had every family member had joined Air Force all the way, or my uh, my grandfathers were both Army in World War Two. Okay. And uh, <coughs> my dad's dad. Uh, always told him that if he, he ever wanted to go military, to go to the Air Corps. Okay. Because my dad grew up hearing stories of eating egg, fried eggs out of battle helmets and things like that. Yeah, old school kind of shit. That's just not the life that my dad wanted to live. So, <laughs> uh, During Vietnam, uh, my dad and mom got married, and my mom had a friend that worked at the draft board. And they went out to dinner one night, and the the girl that they went to dinner with told her, told them, your number's fixing to come up. Yeah. If you don't want to get drafted, you need to do something, and you need to do something soon. Damn. That's got to be like fucking with your mind. Like, you know you're about to get drafted to go to war. Like, I can't imagine, like, being that type of age. So, so Dad went down and talked to the Air Force recruiter. To keep from getting drafted. Right. And ended up just loving it. Spent 21 years active duty. Awesome. And he joined in 69. <laughs> Good I, year. I was born in 76. I was born in, uh, my dad was uh, stationed in Germany. Okay. At, uh, he was stationed at Bitburg Air Base, which was a 40-minute ride from the neighbor base, uh, Spangdalem Air Base. Spangdalem. Is that a... Air Force Base as well? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, actually, I think I'm trying to remember how it worked. Yeah, Dad was stationed at Spangdalem, and my mom had the doctor that she's seen for her entire pregnancy rotated between the bases. Right. When it came time for me to come around, he was on a rotation at Bitburg, so okay. I was born at Bitburg Air Base, Germany, in October of 76. Uh, we Big came States. back to the States in... 78. Okay. I was about 18 months old when we came back to the States. I, uh, I bounced around the Southeast. My dad was a recruiter in Tennessee. 
uh, went from Tennessee to Georgia, Georgia, Georgia to Georgia to South Carolina, and Dad hit his twenty year mark. The Air Force said, "Okay." Well, that's when you got back to the states. He hit his twenty year mark. No, he hit his twenty year mark in eighty nine. Okay. Uh, the Air Force said, "Okay, Chief, we've uh, we have no more need for you at this point. Right, right. We're going to give you your choice of two bases. You can go to Kirtland Air, Bo- Air Base, New Mexico, or Elmendorf, Alaska. Wow. So we that's either, not much of a choice there. We either had the desert or the tundra to choose. <laughs> oh my God! And my dad, being the fact that he had hit his twenty-year mark and he was ready for retirement, he said, "No, no. I think I'll just poop all my fucking life." Right? Yeah. yeah. I can understand that. So we moved. We moved back to Georgia, and I was in sixth grade. I went to three different schools. My the my sixth grade year of school uh, started in the city school, transferred to the DoD school, and then we moved back to Georgia, and I transferred into my third school. Okay. So, um, so because I guess because you know you had family that enlisted that make you more want to join and serve mm-hmm. or did like 9-11 really push you over the edge which was the driving force for you I was already at the duty that's true you were already in so when 9-11 happened you know where were you and where were you like what was your mindset then in the Air Force uh, when 9-11 happened I had been active duty for five and a half years uh, I was actually at work we were in the middle of a oper- operational readiness instruction. Okay. Uh, inspection, I'm sorry. Uh, so they were checking y'all out. You were kind of going through the movements and loading bombs. That's or? how the Air Force plays war games. I got you. Okay. So, yeah, we go out and we load them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we're really prepping like, for just like go, go, go. Yeah. Like jets away, right? We had all our jets loaded. Damn. When 9-11 happened. Right. Uh, there was a, there's a period of time where you simulate a mission. And that's... The air crew comes out and they inspect the aircraft and say, okay, this thing's ready to fly. I accept it. And then because the B-52 flies such a long mission, you just sit idle for about 18 hours. Damn. So we were in that idle period simulating our mission. Right. We, uh, somebody had brought a PlayStation to work because we knew <laughs> we, we, knew we were going to be in this idle period. And we just had put Austin Powers in the oh my PlayStation. We're Why? Of all the things you could have watched, you pick Austin fucking Powers. Because we had, <laughs> that was about the fourth or fifth movie we watched that night. Okay. <coughs> so that makes kind of sense. You guys are downgrade from something to that, right? Yeah. Okay. But, uh, we're all sitting there in the office, and Mass Sergeant walks in. He's like, hey, turn on the news. Like, dude, we're about to start a movie. No. Absolutely not. Fuck no, man. What are you thinking? No, somebody just ran a plane in the World Trade Center. Mm. Like, wait, what? Yeah, turn on the news. Let's let's see what's going on. We turned on the news just in time to see the second plane hit. Okay. I think I was in, I think my freshman year in high school, whenever that happened, I think I was in, like, biology or some shit. And, like, you know, all the TVs in school, of course, was, like, turn on like watching this shit and then I think it's right when the second plane hit I think and then it's just catastrophe from that I was like, yeah. holy fucking shit nobody knew what to think at the time but I was still a little young so I, of course I I think I, uh, yeah, my freshman year so I couldn't enlist 
So I was like, oh, fuck, this is crazy. You know, 2001, three more years, I couldn't enlist. So, so uh, we're, we're, all, we're all sitting in the office, and we've all got our, our CB radios, and all of a sudden, just this base-wide message comes out, evacuate all buildings. Damn. 50 feet from all buildings. So where were you at whenever this happened? What uh, base were you on? Barksdale Air Force Base. Yeah, Barksdale, okay. Yeah, up in Shreveport. Uh, so... We immediately go into scramble mode. We're thinking we're going to war. Right. Uh, we got to get these bombs down so that we can get these jets ready for war. That was just about the time Bush landed. See, Air Force One. He, he, he landed at Barksdale with Air Force One. Yeah. President Bush at the time. Okay. Uh, he uh, watched Air Force One come in. It was just this amazing sight. And we're out on the flight line, and <laughs> I, we looked up. There was about eight of us in a van because we weren't allowed to be anywhere near a building. Right. So we're all just sitting listening to the radio, and we're listening to a, the broadcast about all the flights being grounded. And Barksdale didn't. This is when people are freaking the fuck out. Yeah. Like FAA is going crazy. They don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. Flights to go on haywire. This is at this point. I'm pretty sure uh, the Pentagon had been hit. See, I was just about to ask you that. Like, this is after the Pentagon had got that plane that it yeah. check right uh, Flight 93, the one that went down in uh, Pennsylvania, was right. still in the air at this point. Okay. So, we're all just listening to the radio, just freaking out. Uh, I remember one guy's like, hey, what is that? And we look up and there's this airliner just kind of circle on the base. Yeah. Like, oh shit, what the, what the fuck? What the hell is going on? And come find out he was burning off fuel so that he could land at Shreveport Regional Airport up there. Okay. But uh, we're, we're just, we stood there for a good 30 minutes at least, just watching him circle, thinking, is he coming this way? What, what the hell is going on? So was that, was that Air Force One that was circling around or was that just another? That was just a, a passenger aircraft that okay. had been told you need to land immediately. Oh. Because of all the shit that was going on, FAA was like, land now, cancel all flights. Yeah. Lockdown kind of shit, right? Yeah. So and so after that, so after, like, you know, after all that shit with the the towers and everything, so did, did you guys deploy? Did you move? Like, so, because you were obviously a part of Operation Anaconda, which was, you know, the initial invasion mm -hmm. of everything. The, uh, Barstow Air Force Base has three bomber squadrons. Okay. Uh, two active and one training. Okay. Uh, the 96th and the 20th being the active. The 96th, the previous deployment, had been the lead squadron. So it was our turn to kind of stand back and take our breath. Okay. So the 20th bomb squadron was the first squadron to, to deploy after 9-11. And they went to, right into... Uh... They, they immediately started packing bags and they left. Okay. <laughs> And they spent four months. There's a uh, there is a little tropical island. It's a British owned British Indian Ocean territory. It's called a biot. Oh yeah, I know what you mean by that. Yeah, uh, biot. Biot is uh, so Iraq. Biot. No, biot. Biot. Okay. British. <laughs> British. Yeah, yeah. Indian now, Ocean territory. Now I got you, British. See, that was like. Kind of confusing, but yeah, now I got you. So okay. it's a it's a Britain-owned country. 
right. but it's run as a U.S. naval base. Got you. Okay, that makes uh, a lot more sense. Now. It's it's uh, Diego Garcia. It is it's called the Horseshoe of Freedom because it is one of the B-52s and the B-1 and the B-2 forward operating locations. So B-1s is the bombers. Is that the yeah spirits? Is that the B-1 spirit? Is that the bombers? Uh, B-1 is the no, B-2 is the spirit. It's right. the stealth. B-1 is the B-1B Lancer. Is yes, that right? the Lancer. So the Lancer is a stealth aircraft as well. No. Is it an observation aircraft? Or no, it is It is a. It is the only supersonic uh, bomber aircraft. See, that's where I got confused. Cause you, got the, you see the B-2 spirit, you hear the B-1B Lancer. Like, uh, it looks a lot different. You can obviously tell that it's not the same yeah, aircraft. The, the, the B-2 is the flying wing because there's no vertical surface on right. it. Right. Uh, there's no there's no rear stabilizers to uh, keep it in flight. It's all done by ailerons and advanced math and magic and things that I don't understand. So, uh, so you had Operation Anaconda kicked off, of course, and you know you had the bomber squadrons that were deploying. Uh, when did your bomber squadron actually take on the mission and deploy to that area of conflict and, uh, and get involved? Let's see, the twentieth. 20th uh, Bomb Squadron deployed September of 01, and they were gone for 120 days. We were doing four-month rotations. Okay. So they came back January, and we deployed February. And I think Anaconda kicked off in March. Okay. And, it, like, I, was, I did kind of a little, like, uh, just fact-checking and looking into it. Like, you know, what's crazy is... Um, um, Anaconda focused on the Afghan Shahi Kot Valley, mm-hmm. which is a nine-kilometer stretch in you know thousand meters, one kilometer. Which which is crazy because uh, my deployment, my second deployment in Afghanistan was in Gardez, and it's literally sixty kilometers from the Shahi Kot Valley. Oh wow! Which I didn't know it was until I relooked into it, like. Operation Anaconda was literally like, you know, a drive from us where we were stationed in Gardez, which is right on the Pakistani-Afghan border, which is it's cool because you were talking about it. And I was like, I wanted to bring that up, which I thought was amazing. Um, so, Shahi Khat Valley. Um, so, there was two areas in Shahi Khat, correct? There was like an upper... In the valley and like a lower valley is that right i i'll be real honest with you. <laughs> uh, it, look, there's some things that i like i kind of looked into and i was kind of researching just trying to you get more information on that like whole operation of anaconda and right like, shahi cop kept coming up coming up and uh task force amber task force Anvil. okay there's yelling going on in the other room of course uh so redskins guys with the redskins Oh, oh, Darius Crash just flew to the rescue. Cool. <laughs> okay. That's these. So, um, you know, Task Force. Are you familiar with Task Force Hammer and Anvil? Was I remember the names? Okay. I like. I, there's some significance with that. Uh, I think that's where when Operation Anaconda broke out, the, the first like uh, initial. Uh, deployment was, you know, Tesla Hammer and Anvil were in Garbeds where we were stationed okay. in 08. I'm sorry, 11. Which this happened, you know, back 
after 9-11 and shit. Right. So this was years before that. Nine years prior. Right. So this was, it was kind of crazy because how your deployment back then lined up with my second deployment because we were literally in like like a block, like a grid square away from each other right. in different areas of operation, which is fucking crazy how small this world is you yeah. know, to deploy to. And one of the things that struck me about that was this uh, Taliban commander in uh, Gardez, and his name was Mansour. So Mansour was a prominent figure in the uh, Paktia province right. in Gardez area because I think he was playing both sides of the field. He was helping the U.S. and NATO allies, but he was also on the Taliban side, feeding them in intel here and there. And he ended up getting killed by, I think he ended up by a U.S. airstrike, like most Taliban commanders. <laughs> Fuck your face, bitch. <laughs> and like, whenever, like, when we had this certain route, one of our routes, our main routes was Idaho, we called it. And uh, there was this one area we passed by every time we would dismount by. It's called Mansour's Grave. And that's where he was buried, so Taliban commander Mansour. Which it was crazy because he's he's linked to this whole thing with Operation Anaconda, you know, Task Force Hammer, Task Force Anvil, and Operation Anaconda, Task Force Anaconda, if that's what you want to call it, which is really cool. Um, and it just it's just such a like really crazy and like convenient that you know we're both obviously from two different generations of right. service. Um, when did you get out of the military? 04. 04. So 04 was when I joined the military. <laughs> so you did, how many years in the Air Force did you? Eight and a half. So you did eight and a half, okay, and I joined in 04, and I did 14 years, just got out this year. And just the gap, but to go into the same area of operation, it's like, it's kind of crazy. You know what I mean? You, you link yeah. up, and we get you on the podcast, so... I just thought that was really interesting. <laughs> the more I looked into it, like, holy fuck, Jeff, I mean, you have a lot more in common than you think, you know? Well, I've never I've never set foot in Afghanistan. But, like I said, I deployed to Diego Garcia, which was a tropical island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Still, I mean, you were on, you know, on standby, loading bombs, getting, sending these fucking jets off to mm-hmm. drop bombs on foreheads. So... I mean, warheads on foreheads. That's right. Bam, there we go. <laughs> you, I mean, you were there. You were arming the fucking jets. So, to me, that's considered, yeah, you were in the fucking fight. So, it was, so, it was, it was really, you know, I, like I said, I joined in 05, or uh, 95, and when 9-11 happened, I'd been in five years. No, six years, almost six years. Uh... There's not a lot of call for bomb dropping, so... Yeah, they, I mean, at the time, I think it was more like uh, armored, mechanized infantry kind of thing. You know, you had a lot of tank warfare then. But even even before 9-11 happened, we, we had to train to be able to do our jobs. Right. So I'd trained to do my job for six years, but I'd never had the, 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 the joy... Yeah, it was joyous. <laughs> Let's be honest here. How much joy do we really get out of doing some of the shit that we were trained and joy to do? I mean, 
I can be honest with you, there's been maybe, you know, a handful of times as a combat engineer that I'm like, yeah, this is so much fun to me. <laughs> you blowing shit up and fighting IEDs. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was there was a there was a tremendous sense of pride when the job that I did train for right for six years actually got put to use after nine eleven. Yeah, you know, and uh, it's it's cool because you know you actually you train for so fucking long and you're like, what am I gonna actually gonna use any of this shit? And then you fucking you get deployed, you go even to. British Territory Island, you're doing your job. You're loading bombs on aircraft, and these fucking dudes are getting ready to go out and destroy Al-Qaeda, Taliban, and insurgents on a daily basis. And and we were loading, on average, seven to... uh, Operation Anaconda was the largest air assault since Vietnam. That was awesome. Uh, Just seeing that shit on the news and... We were we were loading on average eight to ten jets a day, with eh, probably around forty bombs. That's awesome. And like I said, I'd done it for six years, and I'd see them take off, and they would either come back with the same bombs that I put on them, or I knew that they were dropping them on a bombing range just to give the pilots training in Utah. So how long did you guys actually stay in that British island? On the uh, was we it four month rotation? Is yeah. that right? 120 days. 120 days. Okay. So you so because you, because if we had done six month rotations, they would have had having they would have had to give us uh, credit for a short uh, tour. So what does that mean? Like a an like extra a, ribbon. On your oh, program. okay. So you get like a um, a star or a cluster or something. If you don't already have the okay. ribbon. That's, that, is that like a GWAP thing, like go war on terrorism, or is that no? Uh, the Air Force has. What they call over uh, for every overseas tour, you overseas earn, ribbon, right? You earn a ribbon, right? And yeah. you earn either a short ribbon or a long ribbon. Six year, six months to one year, is a short tour. Anything above three hundred sixty-five days is a long tour. Gotcha. Okay. So if we had, uh, if we had been gone for six months, ridiculous though. Like how many Air Force guys get a three hundred sixty-five day deployment? Well, it's not just deployment. If you go okay. to, if you get stationed at Lake and Heath Air Base, ah, uh, see that, that makes sense because the army has none of that shit, which is crazy. But that's cool to uh, like to hear from other branches, like you know, because look at Bagram for one. Bagram's right. a huge fucking air base in Afghanistan, and it's now a permanent duty station. Has a post commander, a one star general, and everything. You can get stationed there for, you know, however long, which right. is interesting to hear, you know. Uh, I just think that's fucking nuts. I don't know. I'm fucking boggled. You know, I've been there twice, and I swear every time you go there, they're adding more more barracks and shit. They're expanding on a daily basis. It's, it's fucking nuts. <coughs> so, uh, you know, Anaconda, all that shit went down. And you did, you said six years, right? Is that correct? I did a total of uh, eight and a half. Eight and a half. So, like, so the way, does the Air Force work the same way as the Army? Where, like, you had, like, a six by two or four by four contract? Three, yeah. You did all active yeah. duty, though, right? Yeah, I was all active duty. So, you did all active duty eight and a half, you said? Mm-hmm. See, I, I never wanted to do that. Did you? I was too loving Louisiana too much and being my family all the time. I, I never saw myself as anything other than active duty. That's awesome, man. 
It's good to hear. So, so you got out um, after eight and a half. Mm-hmm. You finished. Uh, you know, you, you pulled. You came back. And so, what made you decide after eight and a half years? You know, because your your dad so did twenty, right? And got out. What made you not want to continue and do the full twenty? Um, the last four years of my enlistment, I was an NCO. And I never had a troop report to me. I never had NCO responsibilities. I was a glorified junior enlisted. Okay, so that doesn't make any sense. So you get promoted to an NCO position. Um, So the Air Force ranks are kind of similar to the Army. I think it's one rank different. So... So you were a E five, E six, E five, E five at the time, mm-hmm. which is a, is a sergeant in the staff Air Force, staff sergeant, staff sergeant in the Air Force. Right. Okay, so E six in the Army, be a staff sergeant. So E five and then Air Force is staff sergeant. Right. So, I just how how is that that you you didn't have a team of guys or a squad in your command? Uh, the year that I made staff sergeant E five. The Air Force promotion rate from E4 to E5 was almost 48%. Wow. That's it? So everybody got, you got a stripe. You don't. You, every you got a stripe. You don't. So it was you kind of a the draw kind of thing. Like, so, the, so y'all didn't have, uh, so I don't know if it's like, so Army active duty and Army like reserve, National Guard, go by a list, like a promotion list and... There's there's a, there's a lot of factors that play into the promotion scale mm-hmm. after you hit E4. You there are uh timing right time saves, time saves, time saves, yeah. Uh there is a uh promotion fitness exam that you have to take. Yeah, you're you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there is a specialty knowledge exam that you have to take. Is that based on your job? Yeah, yeah. MOS. Okay. Uh me being a aircraft loader, I had to know about every aircraft that carried bombs. So, I, like, I've never this, touched. This is including like munitions, submunitions, everything. Right? It's it's uh, you have to know about every bomb. You have to know about every plane that can launch a bomb. Damn! Like I never touched an A ten, never touched an F fifteen. Uh, why? Why though? Was what was what was the reasoning behind your focus on other aircraft? It was the way that my assignments worked out. Okay. I, I when I joined the Air Force, I jo- I joined with a guaranteed job of weapons loader. Right. My first. But you're not guaranteed what aircraft you're going to work on. Correct. correct. Okay. That makes more sense. Uh. It still kind of fucking sucks because the A10 is fucking awesome. Oh yeah. You know what I mean. Uh. But my first duty assignment was Barksdale Air Force Base. So I got trained on the B-52. Spent four years at Barksdale. Spent 90, July of 96 through April of 2000 at Barksdale. Then I went to Kunsan Air Base, South Korea and worked the F-16 for a year and came right back to Barksdale gotcha. okay. and worked the B-52. So I've never had any kind of hands-on knowledge of any of the other aircraft. So, so at, at that point, you know, it's D five. You're like, all right, fuck this. You know, I've got what? I, like, they're not going to let me get any further in my career. Like, you decided eight and a half that 
there was just enough and you were like, I'm fucking over it or uh Be honest with me, man. Be honest with the world. There is I know I, I know that the Air Force in, emotions are ranking. In, in two thousand four, the Air Force decided we need to eliminate sixteen thousand six hundred and I think it was like forty two enlisted positions. Right. I still had another year and a half left on my enlistment at that point. But they said, you know what? We're taking volunteers. So did you volunteer? It, it, at that point in time, I was working for the absolute worst commander. Oh, I know how that is, I've man. ever Been dealt there. with. Been fucking there, dude. And it was just... You Probably know, Boudreaux eat my balls. I was... Uh, at that point, I wasn't even working in my career field. I had been moved from working on aircraft to managing the weapons equipment and our tool crib. What? Why, though? It's like... Well, I volunteered to take the position because I wasn't being treated as an NCO. So, were, were they like, so was that kind of like a either you go to this position or you get out kind of an option? Was that was the... No, at that point... Well, oh, you were just... So you were not... I had, I had volunteered to take that okay, position. Okay, so you were happy years. where you were as an enlisted, in, junior enlisted NTO, correct? Correct. So they were like, all right, fucker, we'll go here and... Well, yeah, I was I was not being... I was, I was a glorified senior airman, which mm-hmm. is an E-4. Uh, I had the pay of an E-5. Right. I still got treated like an E-4. Well, that's horseshit. Uh... So they said, hey, we need an NCO to go manage the weapons equipment over there. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck it, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm done, dude. So Jeez. I go over there, and I was a shift supervisor, but I still didn't have any troops reporting to me or nothing. anything. Nothing. So you didn't have a team, and have a squad, and no. nothing. Didn't, didn't, I'd never written an enlistment uh, or a uh, performance report. Wow. Never, never had to do any kind of counseling or paperwork. So or your leadership really failed you from the start. Yeah. Like, literally, because you should have been doing quarterly, quarterly, monthly, annual counseling on your guys. Mm-hmm. And as an E5, you should have at least had a team of guys, of four or five guys at least, you know? I can see. So that kind of, that really is what pushed you from saying, okay, I've done my eight and a half, I don't want to fucking do this anymore. Right. Did that really set that off for you? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Uh, the Air Force came out and said we need 16,600 enlistment, enlisted personnel to get out. And, and separate. Know. So you were like looking up, raise my hand, here I am. And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, we'll pay you to get out. Oh shit, well. We'll, we'll, we'll buy out your enlistment with a percentage. And what was that percentage? I think I ended up getting money. Was it worth it at the time? Or? I am the lump sum after taxes I got. I think was like thirteen grand. Damn. Which wasn't bad money. Fuck no. Back in '04. <laughs> Shit. When I enlisted in '04, it was a critical job, critical enlistment kind of thing. And as an eighteen-year-old kid, they were like, "Oh yeah, we need six grand." I was like, oh, yeah. "I was like, I never seen that kind of money in my life." So I was like, "Fuck yeah, where do I sign up?" You know. And I did it. Shit. I don't think you know that. $13,000 as an E5. And how old were you at this time as an E5? Uh, 04, I was 27 years old. Shit, I mean, you're under 30. I mean, that's, that's not bad money to, yeah. to peace out, to get out of your contract. You know yeah. what I mean? Fuck, I don't want to take the green weed no more. I would have done the same fucking thing, man. I don't blame you for that shit. That's awesome. 
I don't I don't regret getting out when I did, but I wonder how much different my life would be if I had stuck around and retired. I got you. So if you so where would you think now if you were stuck around for twenty? Like would you think you'd be in the same duty station? Would you have switched jobs? I know he said like as an E five you weren't happy with not having guys, not having responsibility. You treated as a junior NCO. I think that if I could have gotten away from Barksdale, yeah. it would have made a world of difference. Because, like I said, I went to Korea for a year. When I left Barksdale, I was at E4. While I was in Korea, I made E5. I went back to the exact same workstation. Did you do So you were at the DMZ? And- no, I was, I was on the southern tip of the peninsula. Okay. But, uh... I walked into the same workstation, the same office. The only thing had changed was I had extra stripe on my sleeve. Right. Same management was there. Had a couple of new faces running around, young kids fresh out of boot camp and everything. But I had left a E4, and when I got back, they never adopted the mindset that I was now an NCO. That's what I hate, man. Like, it's a lot of, like, you can tell from, like, as generations go by and go to training that how much has changed from when yourself or myself has gone through recruit training, basic, and job training. Like, it's not the fucking same. It's, you are, it's, they literally watered down these fucking training programs mm-hmm. for these fucking kids, and it, it sucks. And nobody respects anybody now. It's a lot of harder now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know. It's, it's difficult. So, you know, so eight and a half years, you did your time, you got out, you know, and you wanted to move on with your life. So, right. So you came back from, was this after you came back from Korea? I went to Korea before 9-11. So you were in Barksdale. Yeah. When you decided to get out of everything and move on with your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, what, where did you... What did you do after you moved away from Barksdale? What was your goal to get away from that? Uh, my first job when I got out of the Air Force was a uh, point-of-sale merchandiser for a beer and wine distributor. Distributor. Mm, you Indiana. said beer. That's a magical word. <laughs> uh, if you go into a grocery store and you see a display of wines, that's what I did. I built those wines. That's awesome. Things. Yeah, I love it. Uh, the pay sucked. <laughs> Always, right? But uh, I enjoyed the job. I did it for a year and a half. And, uh, the general manager that I worked for always said he believed in promoting from within. Right. There was a sales route that came open. And there were three internal pl- applicants for the job, and he hired from outside the company. I said, you know what? I'm done. Done. So you wrapped that up. I'm like, nah, well, okay. Time to move on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I can understand that completely. Uh, so, so you moved, so where were you at whenever you, so Barksdale, you <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <coughs> you left Barksdale, and then, so did you move closer down south? No, I, I stayed in, I stayed in Shreveport for, uh, let's see, I got out in 04, and I moved to Baton Rouge officially in 2016. 17. Okay. And that's now you're living in Denham, correct? Correct. Denham right. Springs. Okay. Yeah. 
it's great. So I'm glad you're here now, though. I mean, oh, yeah. close to Baton Rouge, close to us and everything, and we really appreciate it. So, um, yeah, so Jeff, thank you, of course, for coming out. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad I had you on my first episode of, like, actually having an actual guest on the show. I'm very excited to have you, and thank you for your service, of course. And thank you for yours. <laughs> and this is... It's, it's fun, like, just to reconnect with guys and get, you know... See how, see how the other branches yeah, see, live. See how, like, everyone else is living mm-hmm. and what they've gone through. And it's always good to reconnect with people and make sure that everything's good with them. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And I'm very happy for that. Um, but, again, thank you for coming. And, uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And well, I, 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 I absolutely love the idea of what you've got going here. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, and that's that's like I want to just help people reconnect and make people laugh, and that's the whole purpose of it. If one person finds this funny, that's good enough for me. Yep, and that's all I need. All right, so uh, that's it for our show. Um, thank you guys for listening. I thank you, Jeff, for coming. Uh, this is story from the front. I'm Oliver, Jeff Carmier, Air Force vet, badass motherfucker. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, of course, check us out on social media. I'm at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Stories in the Front. You can find it. Um, if you want to be on the show, you're a veteran, you're local, uh, send me a message. Shoot me an email. Stories from the Front Official at gmail.com. I would love to fucking have you. Believe me. Um, next week, I should have a good friend of mine on the show to talk about a story from our first deployment, 2008, in Balls of Flashbang. He better be here. I'm very upset. So uh, thank you guys again and carry on. Thanks for listening to Stories from the Front. Follow us on all major social media platforms for updates on guests and episodes. I am an American soldier baptized in fire and blood. I give my heart and soul trying to do good.